Have you ever longed to escape reality or fantasized about stepping into someone else's shoes, even for just a little while? Hi, I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Hawley. We host CBC's Play Me, the immersive podcast that transforms theater into addictive audio fiction. Join us for a new season and disappear into a world rich with drama, where every show delivers hypnotizing stories and unveils intriguing characters with secrets. Play me wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. You know, when I write these songs, they're for myself, certainly. And then as soon as I share them publicly, they're not mine anymore. They're yours. So use them. <laughs> use them anytime you want. Anytime, day or night, in the car, middle of conflict, after repair, before conflict, whatever you want. Rx. You heard her there. The doctor is prescribing you to use any of her songs however you'd like. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. The doctor in question there is the legendary Canadian musician Alanis Morissette. Alanis is from Ottawa, but came to worldwide fame kind of overnight through her album Jagged Little Pill, which is one of the most commercially successful albums of all time. When it came out in 1995, it made the top of the charts in 13 countries. It sold over 33 million copies worldwide, and it is, to this day, one of the best-selling albums by anyone ever. And now, decades later, Alanis's album was adapted into a new Broadway musical called You Oughta Know. I was lucky enough to see this in New York, I want to say, three weeks before the lockdown started because of the pandemic. Like, I remember being on the subway going to see this this play and my friend saying to me, you know, they're saying there's going to be a lockdown. You know, they're saying it's going to be a global pandemic. And I went, oh, really? I don't think so. Uh, It was the first time, though, when I went to see that musical, it was the first time I had ever seen this happen. There was a standing ovation in the middle of the musical. And I was part of it. I leapt to my feet just like everybody else. Now You Ought to Know is set to hit home. You Ought to Know is opening in Toronto, October 24th at the Princess of Wales Theatre there. So we thought that was a great opportunity to reshare our conversation with Alanis from a little while ago. Here's my conversation with Alanis Morissette. How are you? Oh, man. Now, these days answering that question, I can either answer it with maniacal laughter <laughs> <laughs> An emo- any emojis have been answering, but uh, it's a roller coaster time. You know, it depends when we all catch each other. But um, in this moment, I feel really great to be talking with you. Well, I'm really happy to be talking with you too. How's your How's your pandemic? How's your? <laughs> oh my gosh! You know, I mean, we're. I find a panacea or a little salve for me is when I serve. Um, it sort of gets me out of the, oh my gosh, what's happening with the world politically, spiritually, emotionally, socially, all these personality disorders are so normalized in culture now that we've, that all we know is this combative, odd chapter that we're in. Um, so yeah, it depends when you catch me. I'm, I'm postpartum activity, moody, empowered, lost, depressed, panic attacked, happy lady. <laughs> As always, like the rest of us. Yes, exactly. What, what do you mean by serve when you serve? Um, it could be any form of serving. You know, writing songs or making art is a form of moving energy. And, and if you share it publicly, I, I believe that all artists are social activists. And then um, it, could, it could be anything. It could be volunteering. It could be donating. It could be supporting people in voting in America. It could be... I mean, there's a million ways. It could be picking the right T-shirt that makes someone's day. <laughs> you know, it doesn't. It could be micro, macro, and everything in between. 
Well, I'm excited to talk to you about the new record and about the old records, too. You just released your first album in eight years at the same time as reissuing the 25th anniversary edition of Jagged Little Pill. When you look back at Atlantis then and Atlantis now, what's one difference you can pinpoint? Um, I think uh, when the one-dimensionalizing tendency was, was in full throttle for me in terms of you know calling me the angry white female... I mean, accurate, uh, one-dimensionalizing though and kind of reductive. So I would say my anger has always been a, an energy that I love. And I think anger gets such a bad rep because it we often equate it with destructive anger, yeah. acting guns and fighting and murder and war, you know. But anger itself is such a powerful, beautiful emotion that can move worlds, it can set boundaries. Anger itself, I think, gets a bad rep, but I love it so much. And the difference between then and now is that you know the the it was, there was this desire maybe from patriarchy or otherwise to reduce what I was doing to one or two things and I think it's a natural human tendency sometimes to want to define someone and move on you know um, but the truth is is we're complex creatures multiple parts to us different perspectives even within our one system here so I think now I'm just using anger whenever I need to fuel a, a boundary being set or um, or serving. I, I want to take a, a listen to the new record. Listen to this. This is Pedestal. And everything I carry a shame to build you up. You grab my crown. And got everything you wanted. And one day you'll see that you. That is Pedestal by Alanis Morissette. You're listening to Q. I'm Tom Power. We're talking about Alanis' latest album, Such Pretty Forks in the Road. I was struck uh, with this song by how I felt about you writing about fame. Like when I, when I was listening to it, I could hear someone who is famous, who became incredibly famous and very, very, very quickly write about fame. And I thought it would be interesting to maybe try and pinpoint it. Can you think of a moment where you thought to yourself, oh my God, something has changed. Oh my God, I... I Things are getting kind of wild. I'm, I'm, I'm becoming something else. Well, as a Canadian, <laughs> I, uh, I have always enjoyed people watching. So I was the woman sitting on benches and just watching people. And that was the, the most entertainment I could even conjure. Um, and then all of a sudden it turned to the point where I was the watched one. So all the eyeballs came toward me. And while I am a ham and I love performing, there's a whole other highly sensitive, empathic, kind of slightly fragile part of me that you know, almost has attention shame. So this, my foot is always on the pedal and the brake at the same time, like, yes, but no, but yes, but no, <laughs> look away, but come here, you know. So very, very Gemini dualism. Um, but this particular song is really about understanding exploitation and understanding as best as I could, you know, people's agendas or motivations around wanting to hang out with me or wanting to take advantage of certain things. So I think when the turning point that you just asked about for me really happened after the video for You Ought to Know came out and it was blurry. So I could still walk around in the streets and no one would think twice or look twice. But then as soon as the video for Hand in My Pocket came out, there was a little bit more of a clear image of my face. And I remember walking down a New York street and all of a sudden all these people were following me. And I'd had a version, sort of a model version for lack of a better term in Canada. So I I understood the mechanism. I understood the 
oh, wow, they're recognizing you. This is sort of putting a big pause button on a normal human interaction. And all of a sudden there was there were things to consider and to protect and to question and trust, lack of trust, discernment. You know, you had to be like a a very advanced discerning person to figure out what relationship was based on real connection, which, you know, who was uh, who was coming in with, with the agenda that I spoke about. So even to this day, you know, there are times where I'm just like, oh, I missed that one. <laughs> but I had to write pedestal just to explain like that, even though there were times where I might have just sort of white knuckled through circumstances, I knew what was ultimately going on and whether I did something about it at the time or not really at 46 years old now, I look back and just think, well, there are some people that were so sociopathic and so really, really, really great at presenting compassionately or faking empathy that I was snowed once in a while. And, and I'm forgiving myself for that every day. So when you say I missed that one, you, you mean there was someone who came into your life or someone who presented themselves to you who might have been a bit toxic, who might have been not trying to access the, hu- the human person Alanis from Ottawa, but was trying to get this sort of AI version of you. Uh, based based on fame, uh, and and you didn't spot it. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, maybe I, maybe I was a little too infatuated, or maybe I was distracted, or maybe I just wanted. Maybe I saw what I wanted to see. Sometimes I could call it. I could say, oh yeah, I know this person is very sort of opportunistic around me, and maybe I'll tolerate that for a minute. But at the end of the day, I mean, I could talk about fame with you for hours. The the pros and the cons, and and for me, the reason why I said service earlier when we were chatting was is because. Service is a way to make this fame have be a means to an end. I think really my experience of it is it's slightly hollow and also has a lot of great boons to it. If you're fighting on behalf of uh, LGBTQ, if you're fighting on behalf of you know BLM, if you're fighting on behalf of anything, and fighting might not be the right word, but being in the public eye is a really incredible way to serve, I think, and and I'm taking advantage of that. It's so funny because we started out the conversation by talking about like what's the difference between young Alanis and, and Alanis now. And hearing you talk about fame and hearing you about people coming up to you after the Hand in My Pocket video came up, uh, it, it kind of blows my mind a little bit because we have this clip of you from CBC. Take a listen. I think uh, the best advice is basically for my family and my friends just to to stay the same person that I am now and no matter how successful I get or, or you know how many people recognize me in the street or whatever to just uh, not let anything change me because when people acknowledge me or want my autograph or something it's just because they like my music and not you know it's not uh, it's not a go-ahead for me to change who I am. That's an interview from the CBC Vault with Alanis Morissette at 18 years old, talking about fame. Jagged Little Pill, not uh, even uh, nearly out at that glimmer point. Glimmer in the eye. <laughs> not even a glimmer in your eye. What's well, it, maybe it was, though. <laughs> what's it like to hear that? Uh, she's really sweet. Um, I also think, you know, the essential self can't be changed. You know, the capital S self, as I, as I like to call it or think of it. I think there may have been some fear or maybe a lot of people projecting onto me that, oh, as soon as she's famous, we're going to lose her, you know. Interestingly enough, it was a very self-defining process, that kind of crunch of fame, that white hot heat can kind of grind you into really defining who you are, or it can kind of exacerbate any traumas that are already there to begin with. Most people who are experiencing wild amounts of fame, there's, there's often trauma in the background. Highly sensitive people are attracted to the arts, we're artistic people. It doesn't mean that we all know how to 
wear the Michelin suit and protect ourselves in the world, like Jimi Hendrix or Kurt Cobain or Janis Joplin. I mean, super talented, but not necessarily equipped with how to navigate all the aspects of what it is to be famous. So you saw that path, like not, not to say you saw that that exact path, but you saw when you were famous, you wouldn't, when you are very famous, but when you were Jagged Little Pill famous, you saw that path. You say, oh, I can, I can see how that can happen. I can see how that can happen to Kurt. I can see how that can happen to Jimmy. I can see how that, that can happen to, to Janis. Really? Yes, and the, and the, you know, as a Canadian too, uh, a survival sort of strategy tendency on my part is to implode. Some people I know, their tendency is to explode and act out. Mine was to sublimate. And, you know, us sensitives are known to process things. <laughs> we are processors by trade, but um, which makes great art. What would you tell that Alanis we just heard about the road ahead? I would say, um, you know... Y- your innate self is beautiful and I, I, as best as possible, let's surround you with people who can take care of that really tender heart in there. If I can, I can see that kind of work, Alanis. I can, I can hear that kind of work, you know, and I, I don't, I don't think it's any surprise to anyone that some of this road has not been easy for you. I'm thinking about your manager embezzling money, people in positions of power that were supposed to be looking out for you, taking advantage of you. What have you learned from experiences like that? Well, I, I uh, really love trauma recovery work. <laughs> <laughs> That's convenient. <laughs> um, no, I mean, you know, going to therapy and, and really being able to process philosophically what was going on uh, is a lifesaver for me. And I, I just bounce between micro and macro all day long. Like what this conflict that I'm resolving or repairing with my husband, how does that speak to politics? You know, how does this speak to how people are in our families and how does it affect schooling and education? So for me, it's just a big system and a web there everything is inextricably affecting each other so so you know we're being a philosopher and an artist and and a writer it's just it's incredible to be able to carve out some moments so that I can write songs about this and sing about it and then allow interviews like the one we're both having right now to to continue the conversation I want to play another song from the record take a listen to this hey hey waters you got a That is Reckoning by Alanis Morissette. She is my guest today. I'm Tom Power. This is Q on CBC Radio. That song continues a theme we've heard you sing about before, you know, along the lines of sexual abuse. I want to, um, just for a moment, I want to come back to that song, but I want to talk about an earlier song. You know, one of the first times as an, uh, an adult music listener, or at least a grown-up music listener, I heard you sing about these things, and frankly probably heard anyone sing about these things, was Hands Clean when it first came out. Um, how did Hands Clean go over? with people when it first came out? Um, well, it <laughs> depends who was listening. Uh, I thought that it would kickstart a, a, a pretty robust conversation about recovery from sexual abuse, sexual abuse in general. But I think it just kind of slipped past. This was pre-Me Too. This was, I was willing to talk about it. I would talk about it um, to the degree that it might support people or stop, you know, stop future... Uh, Future horrifying moments, and you, and, you, and you were pretty pretty literal about it in the song. Like the the song was this to me. The song was the story. The song wasn't a, a metaphor. The song was the story. Oh, 
dialogue. So the verses are this person speaking to me and then me speaking back and then just saying, you know, the silence. And, and a big pet peeve of mine is when I hear people say, why did this woman wait 30 years? I'm like, first of all, she didn't wait. <laughs> she was saying things all along. Nobody was listening. Have you felt a shift in how these stories are being taken in, how these stories are being accepted, how these stories are even being heard in light of the Me Too movement? Yes, me too. And just consciousness raising in general. I mean, snail's pace, our evolution consciousness-wise has always been such a snail's pace. It takes time for life to change, for consciousness to raise. And there's so many different varying versions of consciousness all around us and in us, frankly. So, you know, all that I can do is attempt to not not fight what's going on, you know, and, and fight as in like passion and activism, but not fight within like if there's fear or sadness or regret or guilt or shame or, you know, as best as I possibly can to turn turn my lens inward and have some kind of a dialogue with that part so it it's not suffering, you know. So, you know, for me, it's about letting people know that if a woman waits or a man waits for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years to share the truth of their experience in their childhood or otherwise that's fast. You know, the fact that they remember it all is a, is a great gift. And the fact that they're listened to and honored, I mean, we're still in patriarchy. It's still pretty uh, molasses in here, but, but we're moving. I want to go back to something you talked about at the beginning of the interview, which has been Rolling Stone referred to you as an angry white female. Um, and, and you said, you know, I didn't really, I didn't really mind that. I mean, I, I, I take that as a compliment. I think I read you say you live for anger. What what is it about anger that you find so powerful? Well, it's it's directly related to passion, and I think the two forces that move worlds are love and anger. You know, so if there's something that needs to be changed or shifted or updated, that force that I mean, if if I think of it just somatically, just in the body, it's it's a heat. My jaw gets clenched. I'm like an animal. My fists want to form. <laughs> You know, and so taking that current because because um, a lot of us are raised to to, to deny it. You know, like you're raised if you get angry to stop being angry. The anger is anger is bad. You know, and then we squish it down collectively as a planet, and then what happens? It's like a beach ball, right? It's like any part of us that we squish, sublimate, repress. It's like pushing that beach ball underwater, and when you let go, it just it acts out in so many people really, really acting out in the world. And the ego only knows its own existence oftentimes in conflict. And we see it in politics today. It's like the, some, some, some of us are only fueled when we're fighting. That's the only time we have a sense of self. And, you know, we're all in fight, flight, freeze, collapse, tend and befriend. And we're bound and wound and armored in this protective animal stance. But the truth of the matter is, the saber-toothed tiger is now in our heads. The saber-toothed tiger is in our fear. The thing that activates our fight-or-flight response, the thing that predator that's chasing us is actually is, is, is within us. Though it does exist. I mean, there are, there are bad actors. There's, you know, I mean, you know of, of more than a lot of people that there's, there's people to be afraid of. It's not entirely within ourselves. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the people. But I mean, I mean nature and nurture. So, so the predisposition to be a psychopath, a sociopath, a narcissist, and if we're nurtured well, a lot of times they'll be completely safe from it being triggered, so to speak. But if they're abused or neglected and they're already genetically predisposed to it, off to the races. And then all of these personality disorders that are born from developmental ruptures turn into sort of a normalized way of being. The narcissistic, unempathic way of being has become so normalized that you know, where did God go? Where did, where did connection go? Where did you are my brother or sister go? Where, where did all these really beautiful spiritual beliefs go? 
but I just think there's a, a soulfulness that would, would that would benefit us from reinvigorating, and however it looks for us, and it's under talked about. With, with with respect, Alanis, when I listen to you talk like this, and knowing your music as well as I do, and and having known your story as well as I do, to 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 listen to your music and even to, just to get ready for this interview, I can't help but think there's a there's a rationalization going on, and or a, I mean, the word to mind comes to like an enlightenment or a maturity to have dealt with horrible people. To have dealt with people, let me say this, I don't know if they're horrible people, people who have done horrible things to you, people who have done noxious things to you and you have spoken yes. about them. Yes. It sounds like you're trying to understand it, which is, which yes. is, which is no, hard. I, for- <laughs> no, I, I understand certain things intellectually. And then there's a whole other level of inner work that I do that is me grieving. Or I mean, to this day, there's not a day that goes by that there's not something moving that I'm processing or that I'm grieving or that I'm letting go of, or I'm just marking and honoring that, you know, this bag of bones here went through what it, you know, what I went through. And right. so, yes, people have behaved horribly, sorry. Um, and, you know, so have I in moments, but, um, but for me to really, I, I researched after the embezzlement chapter, we'll call it. I researched like, what is a sociopath? What is a psychopath? What kind of narcissists are there? So I just studied it. Like it was like my life depended on it and it has very much helped. So when you, you use the word rationalizing or maybe trying to understand it, it's the only way that I can heal because if I don't understand it, I feel as though I'm still subject to it in a way. Mm. So um, my discernment has grown. My resilience certainly has grown, but I'm still innately the same creature underneath all this. We'll be right back. Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel, ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast, Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you got your podcasts. I mean, you know what that is. That's You Ought to Know, but it's the version from the Jagged Little Pill musical um, sung by the Broadway cast. That song turns 25 this year. Featured in the female buddy comedy Booksmart last year, Taylor Swift has performed it with you on tour. I know women who claim it's either the best karaoke song of all time or just perhaps the greatest song of all time. I, I just want to, I, I want to kind of, why? What does that give people? Why do you think that song is injured? Permission to feel, ma'am. Um, I, for me, it's the devastation and the rage. It's the combination. You know, so many times we're taught anything you feel, filter through anger, right? Every other emotion is dangerous, especially for me when I was younger. Sadness, anger, fear also was one that wasn't that welcomed. So um, that song was just me being afraid, sad, devastated, raging out of, you know, 
out of my Zen seat. So, uh, so basically when I perform it, I just feel like it gives people permission to be de- permission to be devastated and to feel that entirely. Uh, when I went to see the show, I got to see Jagged Little Pill. Um, I got to see it and, um, it was so powerful and completely involuntarily every night there's a standing ovation after that song and after that performance of that song. When you are in the audience and you're not singing it, but you're in the audience watching it, do you understand the power of it differently? Uh, yes, because it's the first time I have objectivity receiving the song. Um, what do you notice? Uh, I mean, I, f- I feel like I'm in the audience being given permission to feel. Uh, it's also being taken into a story where there's different genders and different perspectives singing these lyrics and, and, and infusing them and imbuing them with a whole other meaning for young men, let's say, or a husband. Mary Jane is sung through a male voice. So during rehearsals and workshops, I was sobbing and weeping. I just could not stop crying, listening to these songs being performed and the musical director, Tom Kitt, would come up behind me and push my shoulders down because I'd be, you know, I'd be shaking. Uh, I think the objectivity certainly, but also just really feeling and hearing these songs for what felt like the first time. It wasn't me monologizing them. It was me receiving them. It's pretty amazing. I mean, sure. If the cast wasn't nervous enough to have to sing your songs in front of you to look out and see you sobbing, you must be going, Oh my God, this is not not going very well. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Diablo Cody and I, whenever we would, she wrote the book and and anytime we see each other or talk with each other, we're crying. We're holding, (laughs) we're holding each other and sobbing basically. So uh, yeah, I, I, I think I got a glimpse of objectivity and really, I mean, for me, I'm, it's so sacred, everything that's gone on, Jagged Little Pill and before and after. Um, but it's not precious because songwriting is like a quick snapshot, you know. And then when I perform any of these songs on stage or now when I'm receiving them, it's it's a dialogue of energy of just saying, yeah, you, we can feel we can feel this one. We can feel this one. We can yeah. feel these three at the same time. Like you said. But but how I mean, there's not many pieces of art that I, I can look out into a crowd around me and see people. And I was looking at people and going like, there's no way you were born when this record came out. There's no way you were born when this record came out. There's no way maybe your parent was born when this record came out. And and you are being moved by this music. Like there's no, there's there's not a lot like that, Alanis. There's not a lot like it. Mm. Wow. Yeah, I have a hard time wrapping my head around a lot of it. Um, but I do know that as an empath, um, you know, when I write these songs, they're for myself, certainly. And then as soon as I share them publicly, they're not mine anymore. They're yours. So use them, (laughs) use them anytime you want, anytime, day or night in the car, middle of conflict, after repair, before conflict, whatever you want. Rx. Let's take a listen to one more song here.
That is ironic by Alanis Morissette off the record, Jag Little Pill. My name is Tom Power. You're listening to Q. There's a scene in the show that I wonder how meaningful this was to you. And it's not this deep, meaningful, necessarily moment, cathartic moment, but it's a scene that takes place in a classroom where someone does the thing that everybody does with that song, raises their hand and goes, actually, that's not an example of irony. I don't know if, that, I don't know if that's irony. And finally, it's confronted of just like, can you just take a piece of music in? Can you enjoy it without trying to have to be so smart about it? About it? I, I love that for you. <laughs> Like, I love, I loved that. Because I can only imagine how annoying it must be to have people point that out all the time. Well, you know, I mean, being in the public eye, constant projections, projections of light, uh, projections of really dark. So I hold a lot of people's perceptions and, and some of them feel really accurate and some of them are my blind spots and I'll figure it out later in therapy. Thank you very much. <laughs> Others are, you know, super dark, super light. So I think the malapropism and ironic really was just, it was the perfect thing for so many people to just kick my ass with. They're like, There's, I'm, I'm having a hard time kicking her ass. How can I do it? Oh yeah, grammar, grammar problems. You know, so when I was writing that song with Glenn, we literally couldn't have cared less about, you know, making sure that it was accurate. I think in a way that might be obvious. Um, but then when it came out, and I didn't even really want that song on the record at one point, I just thought, ugh. It, I started writing much more autobiographically yeah. after but people liked it so I just said okay what do I know let's put it on um so I'm, I'm so happy we did and um and how Diablo Cody addressed it in the musical is so sweet and everyone's laughing because it's the shadow laugh of like oh her big malapropism mistake where she's raked over the coals for 25 years um but and the, the real irony for me is that I've always been the grammar police you know, and so for me to have my butt kicked was just very humbling and beautiful in that way. And then in other ways, I'm like, okay, the, you know, I know a lot of songs of many, many artists over the years that the, the poetic license was there for them, but apparently wasn't there for ironic. <laughs> An old man turned 98, he won the lottery and died the next day. It's a black fly. Chardonnay, it's a death row pardon. Two minutes too late, and isn't it ironic? No, there's a certain double standard there for for sure. And I mean, there, there was a, there was a lot of strange criticism of of you after that, man. There, and, you know, there were a couple of websites erected to figure out how to kill me. You know, people there were there were just a lot of things that were happening where I was like, this is not humane. And I'm going to do my best not to take it personally. So I stopped reading comments, you know, and I do now because what wound up happening is I threw the baby out with the bathwater. I I wouldn't receive anybody's comments. And um, what we do is around once a month, I'll ask a couple of people who I work, whom I work really closely with to send me messages from people that are just, you know, straight up communication and not derisive and not cruel, no bullying, just, you know, cause I want to, I want to hear, I want to hear people's stories and I want to hear what's going on. I don't want to be insulated and isolated. So I, I hope you do. I hope you know that when we were getting ready for this interview, the conversations every, every single person had, in particular the women in our office, was how that changed their lives. Like, mm-hmm. I, I would hate for you to live your life not knowing that. I would hate mm-hmm. for you to know not that people haven't made literal, tangible choices in their life because of the music that you made. And I, I, I would hate for you to go through life without that, you know? Thanks. You're so kind to mirror that. Uh, I, I miss Canada so much speaking with you. <laughs> <laughs> Canada. Um, yes, I, I am moved. And the fact that 
it was supporting people on their unique journeys and it was a soundtrack of a kind for them. That's what kept me going back to the service word again. If it were just fame and it were just that white hot heat zeitgeist bubble, I don't think I would have been sustainably interested, but because of what was being offered to people in terms of mercy and empathy and validation and understanding and inspiration. I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll keep writing until I'm dead and gone and probably after. I'm, I'm glad to hear it. I want to play another song. Take a listen to this. To my boy, all that energy so I don't love your hues and your blues and equal measure. Your comings and your goings away. My mission is to keep the light in your eyes ablaze. That is a little bit of a blaze from Alanis Morissette's latest album, Such Pretty Forks in the Road. You performed this on uh, The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. I got to see it uh, a little bit earlier. And so your daughter's there with her, Onyx, right? Your, your, your four-year-old. And she's there in your arms. And like, I don't, I don't, how do I say that? She's, she's not a prop. She's taking off her headphones. She's talking to you. She's, she's kind of gatching, as we say back in Newfoundland. Like she's carrying on with you. Uh, are, are my headphones too loud? What a beautiful moment that was of of true parenthood in the midst of all this fame, you know, of the important things in the midst of all this fame. Yes, yes. I mean, fame is just a, it's just an energy. You know, there's so many funny words that people use, relevant, fame. I don't know. I just think fame is just, you know, people know what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> but it must have been meaningful to have her in your arms during the Oh, my day. gosh. Yeah, back to the Onyx. It means they're the most important. My family is more important to me than anything. So if I'm in the middle of shooting something important um, and they need to come in, they're coming in. Well, you know, it reminds me of like what singing actually is. You know, I come, I'm a folk musician and I come from sitting around tables, you know, just singing songs with my friends. And some of my favorite moments are just when the youngsters are just crawling all over my friends, you know, and they're still singing some old beautiful shipwreck ballad. You know, it's, it's something yeah. beautiful about that. There is. And they know they're, they know love. They know what to koala clip onto. <laughs> so it's uh yeah, she's the greatest. And I love making music with my family. We are, you know, we're making a ton of songs together. I'm also in the middle of making a meditation record. So it's like, what could I contribute that would be helpful for our jangled nervous system during this time of, you know, pretty big sea changes going on and, and awakenings. And, you know, we're doing it all at the same time. So I thought making a meditation record might be a nice way to help support the regulation of the planet during a very stressful time. What does a meditation record sound like? You know, I'm about to find out. <laughs> <laughs> you tell me. <laughs> you tell me, Tom. Um, no, it's, Shipwreck uh, ballads. <laughs> <laughs> music um, So, I mean, it's basically music and tones and chord changes that that speak to the nervous system in a way that can calm us. And we have we have emotions and feelings that are kind of ascribed to each track. Um, and for me, it's, it's really fun to write songs where I'm not relying on the narrative lyrically to pull the whole boat along. It's, you know, there's a conversation going on and there is a narrative, but it's more through music and instruments and playing with the sound. And we're about three quarters of the way through. Just do me a favor, like about six tracks in when people are really lulled into that deep <laughs> meditative state, put on You Ought to Know, like make You Ought to Know track seven, like... Just people are so lulled in and they're fully blissed out and all of a sudden, dunk, take a dunk, and they just flip out. We do have a track on there that's called Mania. It's like all this really sweetly relaxing and then a little mania, you know, because we, we're still human beings. There's, 
I, a lot of times with meditation, if someone is really in the midst of, of a traumatic experience or, or working through it, meditating isn't always the best thing to do because you're left alone sometimes with these voices or these thoughts or these sensations yeah. that we don't know how to navigate when we're alone. So a lot of people will say, you know, how do I meditate? Should I meditate? And some people I say, don't meditate, actually, if you can listen to perhaps a guided meditation or a piece of music that you can sort of click onto and, and be led in a way rather than letting all the activity and the voices that are just so normal and natural, you know, but they can get really loud when we get quiet and we can feel feelings even repressing. So sometimes music, meditation music or guided meditation music can be more helpful than straight up silence for some. I read a great quote that said, you delayed the release of such pretty forks in the road, which was supposed to come out in May of this year because quote, do they really want to hear some brunette girl from Ottawa, Canada share her crises? And as I mentioned to you earlier, you, you said I, that you of all people should know that how your music can actually yeah, help yeah, people. Yes. <laughs> that that art can can help people during this time. So, what what ultimately do you want people to take away from it? Well, I, I think what I was alluding to during that moment of quote taking was um, this was when the shock. This was when we were in shock, you know, and there was a lot to take in, and we were, you know, the the whole shock, bargaining, denial, anger. Um, sadness, depression, acceptance, and then not, not in a linear way, but kind of cycling through all those. Early May was a time where a lot of us self definitely included. I almost couldn't take in more information. I was being flooded with so much information that another song with, with a big emotional content to it would have sent me over the edge. But then after time, after, I guess, a couple months later, three months later, it, it felt like, okay, there's a little bit of space in our psyches to, to hold a feeling and if nothing else it could support people in moving energy through their body and crying or just feeling you know because it's for me anyway a lot of the the freezing was happening during this pandemic time because every day I tried I tried to not watch the news too much but you know once in a while checking in with what's going on in the world although it's so skewed through the news channels but definitely um timing was important and and at the end of the day there was no perfect time to, in the middle of pandemic because this has never happened before. And what we're, we're all navigating in virgin snow right now to some pretty large degree, which is exciting. You know, we're having to think on our feet and come up with different ways of connecting with each other. I'm super excited about some aspects of this for sure. I, uh, I, I want to thank you. That's all the questions I have in my paper, but I was talking to my producers. They don't know I'm going to ask you this, but for some reason talking to you the last 10 minutes has just been coursing through my mind. So forgive me for asking a bit of a strange question. What what <laughs> oh, no. what do you what do you hope happens when we die, Alanis? Uh, I don't know if I hope it happens. I just I just feel like our our spirits are all connected. We're all made of the same stuff. We're all made of stardust. Some would say, literally, um, in the quantum physics, all of the conversation. Every scientist now is corroborating the fact that we are interconnected. So for me, I imagine that the body's done like a leaf falling off a tree goes into the ground. And that my spirit does both. It could stay individuated if people want to conjure me, channel some music perhaps. Um, and then it also just kind of goes back into the oneness, you know. And, and the reason why we're here is so that we can be in this playground and be tall and short and cold and hot and delicious and disgusting. And, you know, all these dualisms is what this sort of this party is. Um, but then after, after the body death, before the body birth, you know, that we, that our energy just sort of goes right back into the all and the oneness, you know, that's one theory.
Alanis, <laughs> I love talking to you today. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much for being so thoughtful and for saying such kind things to me. It really means a lot. Well, thank you so much for making the stuff that you made that um, has, has made a lot of people's lives uh, uh, easier to live. Oh, I'm so glad. That's my deep, deep pleasure. Alanis Morissette, I used to watch these like Netflix shows about cults and, and one, I think to myself, no way, no way would I ever get involved in one of those. Are you kidding me? Cults? I'm too smart. And then Alanis Morissette says that and I go, well, maybe, maybe if it was her, I might, I might, I might do it. Um, Alanis Morissette, uh, what a joy to talk to her. Uh, if you want to see the full version of that conversation, it's available on our YouTube, youtube.com. Just look for Q with Tom Power, because I don't know the URL. Because uh, uh, <laughs> I'm not very good at my job. The other uh, episode we have up today is my conversation with the Canadian actor Tatiana Maslany. Go check that out. See you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.